0: We'll be continuing in our series in the book of Romans, and we'll be reading Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. So if you could turn there, and then after you turn there, if I could ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to stand for the reading of God's Word, and we don't do this out of ritual, but we stand to read God's Word out of worship for His Word, that His Word is holy and righteous and good, and that His Word is perfect. So if you're able to stand, please stand now if you're able to. And let's read God's word together. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known that what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life brought death, or proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that addresses us where we live, that addresses the struggles of our heart. Lord, thank you for giving us your law to reveal our hearts. God, thank you that you You don't condemn us for wrestling, Lord. That you, Lord, explain why we wrestle with sin and what that wrestling looks like. And thank you, Jesus, that thanks be to you, God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, you are our deliverer. I pray that you would make your word alive to us this morning, that you would empower everyone to hear and apply, that you would empower me to speak. And may we all worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look around for just a minute. We are really privileged to be able to have lots of non-readers. Actually, they're not in the room right now for the most part, but I think most of the non-readers are are out in their own little room or other rooms, but we have a lot of non-readers and we're really happy about that. And it may sound funny, We're, we, don't, we don't promote illiteracy in the church. We, we want people to learn to read. But we've, we've recently had a lot of non-readers join the church. We had a lot of little babies come to the church. And um, I think we've got a few around here of little non-readers. But you know what a baby, if you went up to a, a baby or somebody, one of the kids that was you know, newly born here, and you, and you went up to that little baby and you said, hey, by the way, you can't read. You should feel bad about that. I think the baby would be oblivious, Right? baby would just kind of make faces at you if you smiled, even if you're saying, you're not a reader, you're illiterate. The baby would probably smile back. The baby would be clueless. The baby wouldn't understand that what its limitations were that it can't read. Now, the, what happens is when a baby gets a little bit older and parents begin to read to it, and it understands that this is not just my parent talking to me, but they're reading out of something that's well, a book, and then they realize that when they pick up the book, they can't make anything of it. It's when they're exposed to reading, when they're exposed to a book, then they understand that they're illiterate, that they can't read. And the more that they enjoy stories and hear stories, the more they realize what non-readers they are. And then kids might even struggle. Have you ever experienced it? If you have children they experience a place where they were like, they want to read, and so they pretend to read for a while. They might hold the book upside down. They go flip through the pages. It's kind of cute. You know, we can sit our youngest three-year-old in her bed, and she flips through books, and she thinks she's reading. But in a little while, she realizes that she's really not reading. And what happens is, at some point, kids realize, I'm not a very good reader, and then they get frustrated, and there's a battle, and they wrestle. And as they learn to read, they learn how much they don't know about reading. They might even be intimidated by it first, with us as believers Paul is explaining something to us he has been laying out how the law doesn't set us free and in fact the law keeps us from receiving god's grace and how it's only salvation only comes by grace through faith it doesn't come through the law and paul's been telling us that because he wants us to receive the righteousness of god that's what romans is all about it's about how god makes the unrighteous righteous both to begin with, and then ongoing righteousness. That's what, that's what Romans is about. And so Paul has been showing how God makes us righteous. It's not through the law. And then he shows us that in fact we've died to the law. We, we once were slaves to the law, but um, we were in bondage, and yet Jesus came to set us free from the law. And then he goes on to explain how Not only using that illustration, we've we've died to the law as our spouse. We're we're no longer married to the law. We don't have any obligation to the law. And in fact, the law actually, it inspires or it's the grounds by which it seems to provoke sin at times. As we learned last week. And so you might get the notion that the law is bad. But the law is no more bad than a book is bad the law just reveals our inability the law reveals our inability and so now Paul is helping us understand the law rightly if you're a Christian here have you ever anybody here ever struggle with keeping the law you can raise your hand it's okay anybody ever struggled keeping the law could be God's law it could be man's law or both right have you ever wondered what is it what's our what's our proper relationship to the law what's that supposed to look like you ever wondered that Like, How do we relate to the law as Christians now? It can be confusing at times, right? Especially if you read through the first six chapters or all the way through verse six of Romans seven, you get that place where you're like, well, then what's the point of the law at all? Why do we even have the law? Why did God give the law? What's the point? How do we relate to the law? And then you might even think, well, the law is bad because maybe you were raised in a legalistic environment and the law actually tempted you to deceit. It does. It tempts you. well, at least, at least sin uses the law to tempt you to deceit. Sin, using the opportunity of the law, it tempts you to either hide or to be false or to try to attain your own righteousness. And so you think, I don't want anything to do with the law, right? Maybe you ever have that experience of maybe some backgrounds like that in legalism. You think, I don't, I don't even want to relate to the God. I don't even want to talk about the law. That just reminds me of how bad my life under the law was. And so Paul here is helping us rightly understand the law. And so um, he's helping us understand what is the place of the law. Have you, you know, have you ever wrestled? You ever wrestled with your present experience? You, you, you are now a Christian. You've been saved by grace. And yet, and you, you see God's law. And you see how you don't meet up. And you have this wrestling. Have you ever wondered what that's all about? You ever felt like you can't deliver yourself and like you just want somebody to take you out of your struggles? You ever feel trapped and unable to combat sin? If so, that's what this passage is for. This passage helps answer all of those kind of questions and helps address those real struggles, the real place where we live as believers. It's not an abstract theology. This is a real-life theological exposition, but it's not meant to function just theologically. It's meant to function in our daily lives, to help us understand ourselves and our relationships with the law, and then help us understand, what is this? What's going on? Why do I seem to not be able to do the things that I want to do, and instead, the very bad things that I don't want to do is what I... What I end up doing anybody here ever have that struggle? I know that I know that I do the very good I, I want to do i don 't do. I can relate to Paul sometimes i don 't understand how to relate to the law. so what Paul is doing here is he 's showing us that, like a book is not bad, the law is not bad, but the law does something it functions, and really the first Verses 7 through 13, that it shows us something. It says that the law isn't bad, but it highlights our badness. That's what's going on. That's the first major idea we see, verses 7 through 13. Paul says, you know what? Uh, The law can't deliver, it it doesn't bring grace. The law doesn't bring salvation. You need to be freed from the obligations to the law. And, And actually, if you try to keep the law, it'll lead to death. But don't get me wrong, the law is good. Not bad, but it highlights our badness. Look in verse 7. He's answering just that objection. He says, what shall we then say? That the law is sin? And why does he even ask that question? Because he said the law arouses, in the previous verses, the law arouses sin. What does that mean? Does that mean the law causes us to sin? No, it, it means that sin was lying dormant, in a sense, until the law came and said, you can't do that! And sin says, what? I can do it! Hey, I'm awake now. That's what he's saying. He says, the the law of sin, he says, by no means. The law is not sinful or bad in itself. The law reveals God's holy character. The law is actually the revelation of God's perfection and his goodness and his character and his righteousness. It's the holy standard that God has. Look in, in the latter half of verse 7. It says, that, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had said, you shall not covet. So, so what is he saying here? He's saying, if no one came along to you and told you what a book was, you wouldn't know that you couldn't read if nobody came along to you and told you what coveting was, that's actually one of the Ten Commandments, if, if you never knew the Ten Commandments and, and one of the Ten Commandments says you should not covet, you don't, you're not to desire sinfully what your neighbor has, you're not to covet it as if that is your means of happiness, then you wouldn't have known it's wrong to covet. You would have thought that might be a good kind of um, American idea, right? We're, we're, we're told that, aren't we? In our culture, we're told that the American dream is to have, whatever, 2.5 kids, whatever that's supposed to be, Um, uh, a dog, maybe a chocolate lab, because those are really nice, or a white picket fence and, you know, a certain kind of house and a certain kind of car. You're told that, you're, you're raised that way, and the American dream, supposedly, is all of these things. But if you didn't know that it was wrong to covet, you wouldn't know that it's actually Sinful to live your life for those things. That is sinful to be greedy, to want something for satisfaction that only God can give. And Paul, he uses that example, not just as a prohibition, because coveting actually reveals our desires. It reveals heart motives. And he says, you wouldn't, the law, what it does is it shows us that our very heart's desire is corrupt and that our heart's desires aren't good. Paul's probably explaining his early childhood at least or somewhere probably prior to his bar mitzvah or something like that. And he's explaining, you know, prior to my parents telling me that it it wasn't okay to covet, I thought that it was just fine to want, you know, the other kids' marbles or jacks or whatever they played with back in those days. He says, though, if it wasn't for the law, I would not have known sin. And then he explains how sin functions. He says, look down in your Bibles in verse 8. He says, but sin seizing an opportunity. And, and those words, I love, I love the way those, those words kind of picture this idea of sin kind of establishing a beachhead, a, a place of operations. It seizes the chance through the commandment, through the law. And it says, look in verse 8, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Did that mean that That the law made him covet? No. What it means is that sin, when someone said don't covet, sin says, oh yeah? Well, I kind of want that. And I think that's good for me to want things. And in fact, my wanting of things, that makes me more successful. That's what sin does. It uses the opportunity of the law. And it provokes all kinds of covetousness. The law says, don't look at something bad. And what's the first thing we want to do? You know, I, I use this illustration to my kids all the time. If like we're watching a television show, and it might be a little beyond the maturity in some parts. Other parts are fine. And so I'll, I'll know about that show and say, okay, kids, look away now. And they're like, why? <laughs> why? Or if I say, hey, don't look over there. What's the first thing you want to do? Look over there. That's our innate nature. It's, it's a silly illustration, but it's real. It's a real, although subtle, illustration of the fact that when sin says, don't look, I mean, the law says, don't look, sin says, why? After all, there might be something good there for me to see. I might enjoy it. I think I might want what he says not to covet because it might be good for me. It's kind of like sin sees the opportunity at the very beginning when God said, don't eat of this fruit. Because you'll die. The devil comes along and says, Well, you're not going to really die, really? So it's really good. We're naturally bent to rebel and disobey God. Even when even when we want to obey God, we're naturally bent in our sin nature, the the old man that remains, when the commandment comes, our desire to disobey God is stirred up. To be our own God. And and sometimes that law ends up provoking us to sin and do the very thing the law says not to do. You ever experienced that? There was a illustration in the Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody here ever read the Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody here read the Pilgrim's Progress? It's an excellent book. It's an old book, but it's an excellent book. And and prior to this century, it was actually probably the most widely read book in in the modern era besides the Bible. And in that story he is sharing a story of a man named Christian on his journey to the celestial city. And Christian on his way to celestial city, he meets this man called interpreter. And he goes into the house of the interpreter. And so he goes into interpreter's house. And interpreter is showing him around different rooms and he shows him this room called the law and gospel. And he takes him in this room of the law and gospel. If you remember the story he takes him into the room, and it's covered in dust. Dust is everywhere. There's is layers thick of dust covering everything, and Christian is a little perplexed, and he says, Interpreter, why am I here? What's going on? This room's really dusty and gross, but, you know, it's just kind of lying dormant. It's all over the place, but it's lying dormant. And so Interpreter says, well, bring a man in to come sweep the room up. And so this guy comes in, and he sweeps the room up like crazy, and he sweeps the room up so much that, I don't know if you've ever done this in your own house, in my garage at least, and he sweeps and there's piles of dust come up and the whole room is just filled with a cloud of dust. And, and then Christian starts choking. He's not able to breathe. He says, quit. I can't breathe. Stop, stop sweeping. This is terrible. And so interpreter says, well, let me have this woman come and, and sprinkle a little water. And so this woman comes with a little mister you know in those days i don't know what she had but you know today i can think of a water bottle she sprays water everywhere and and it settles the dust down so then another one comes in another person comes in and and is able to sweep the room clean and christians said what's what's that all about an interpreter says well the dust is sin and it it lied dormant in this room and the man who came and he swept up the room he's the law the law reveals, it stirs up, it awakens sin. And it, and it makes it so that we can't breathe. And, and we feel like we're going to die, we're choking. That's what the law does, it stirs, it doesn't create the sin, but it stirs it up. It reveals it, it shows us our sin to the point where we think we're going to die. And, says, and then the woman represents the gospel of God's grace coming in and, and making way for us to be swept clean by Christ. And Paul says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. That's what he means there. Apart from the law, it was as if sin was dead. It didn't have power to entice us or disobey. There was no command to disobey. It's not that sin didn't exist. After all, Paul had been telling us that in Adam, all have sinned. And since then, we all sin. We just don't know it until the law comes. And The law kind of stirs up that sin and shows us how sinful we are. Verse 9, look in your Bible, it says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. It's not that he was saying that he was, you know, he had no problem with sin before, but he, he felt free. He felt alive to do what he wanted as he willed under his own rule and reign apart from the law. He thought he was alive to God before he understood the law, and yet the law came in, the commandment came in, and then he realized just how dead in sin he really was. That's what he's explaining here in in these verses. He says, so in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The commandment of God, it's good and it promises life to all those who keep it. The problem is no one has been able to keep it. So the the commandment promises life, but then it shows us we can't do it on our own. And so it proves that we're dead in sin. And then look in verse 11, it says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The sin nature is deceitful. It responds to the commandments of God with deceit. Sin deceives us and tells us that God's command is not really good. You ever have that happen in your own heart? That's what Paul's explaining here. What is, how does sin function? How does the law function? Well, the law comes in and says, you know, don't, don't lust. And yet sin says, you know what, lusting's really good because it makes you feel good. But yet, what really happens is we end up dying, sins deceitful. It's exactly what the devil did with Adam and Eve. He, he questioned, he says, you know, did God really command this in the first place? Did God really say, you know, God's not really good. Did he really say that you can't eat from any tree of the garden? This is what the devil said. He's accusing God of being extreme, of trying to keep us from good. That's what sin does sin says that no god's extreme his laws are bad and they just keep us from good and so that same language for deceit is the exact same language of how eve was deceived that's what happens in our own hearts when the law comes in sin uses the opportunity to deceive the devil is insinuating that god wants to keep good things from you he doesn't want what's best for you He doesn't want your enjoyment. He doesn't want your good. And that's the same lie that sin tells us today. Using the opportunity of the law, and maybe you were raised in a legalistic background, you say, you know what, that never got me anything good. I would ever never enjoyed life like that, so maybe I don't need the law, and I don't need God at all. Sin is deceitful, though. Can't be trusted. What will really happen, instead of becoming like God, is that we die. And sin comes in and it deceives. And the sin nature with it through deceit. It twists God's laws. It uses God's laws to make God seem unfair, unjust, untrustworthy. That's what normally happens in our own lives. You think, that's not fair. Why can't I have what's good? What I think is good? Is God trying to keep things from me? Is he trying to be unfair, unjust, or trying to be mean? Sin whispers, God's trying to punish you. And God says, no, I'm trying to show you my need, your your need for me. and To draw you to me so that in me you can have satisfaction. Your sin will not satisfy you. And yet sin deceives and it brings death. And so Paul says, look down at verse 12, he says, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So God's law... It actually is holy. The commandment's holy and righteous and good. It shows what's truly righteous and good for us. Verse 13, he says, "Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. You know, the, the, the very thing that is good that reveals our need for God doesn't bring death to us, but he says sin, in verse 13, look in your Bibles, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What's he saying? He's saying that, that the law, it reveals just how bad we are. The law is good, but it reveals our badness. The purpose of the law is so that sin might be clearly seen as sin and we might see just how bad we really are. The law comes so that we would see that we do not meet up to God's righteous requirements and that we need God and that we can't do this life on our own. So that's, the law's good, but it doesn't, doesn't make us good. That's what Paul's saying. The law came to reveal just how exceedingly beyond measure. Beyond measure. He says that through the commandment it might become sinful Beyond measure. The law is meant to reveal how beyond measure sinful we really are. It's meant to reveal a need for a Savior. It's meant for us to cry out, like Paul does in the latter part of these verses, to God in desperation and seek the rescue from sin that only God provides. So that's what Paul's doing in these verses. He's explaining the function of the law. How do Christians relate to the law? It shows us God's righteous holy standards. We can never attain righteousness through the law. We're dead to having to fulfill the law to be righteous. In fact, righteousness comes by grace through faith alone. But the law is good. It has a good function. It reveals our need for God. But then it does something else. In verses 14 to 23, we see that The law is good because it reveals our need for God, but it does something else. It highlights our battle with our badness. The the law highlights the battle we have with our badness. The law actually shows us just how bad internally we are, and it highlights this battle with the remaining old nature that we have. You know, verses 14 to 23 is probably some of the most debated verses in um, the history of Christianity not because the essential message is unclear, but people have been trying to figure out for years, is Paul talking about himself as a Christian? Is Paul talking about himself and his experience there? And is that normative? Is Paul talking about himself as maybe a carnal Christian or whatever that might be? And then it, or is Paul talking himself as a non-Christian Pharisee? And, and is he giving you know, an illustration of what it was like before he was a believer? But I think if we address those verses that way, we kind of miss the point. If we spend all of our time trying to figure out, okay, who is Paul talking about? The Christian, the non-Christian, what? We, we miss the whole point of why these verses are here to begin with. They're, here, they're, they're a function for us to say, this is how sin functions in our lives. The law reveals this battle that we have. Everyone here, no matter Christian, unbeliever, um, you have sin that's inside of you. But every believer here has something else going on. Every believer, only a believer battles sin. But every believer has a battle with sin. And in, in these verses, I think there's, there's warrant to say that the natural reading is in the first person. It's present tense. Paul switches over from past tense in verses 7 to 13. He switches over to first person present tense to say, I currently. The natural reading is, this seems to be Paul talking about his own wrestling and experience with sin, especially in light of the fact that he says he's been freed from sin before, and there's no condemnation on either end of that. But irregardless, what this reveals is, is that sin is awakened by the law, and there's a battle deep within. There's a battle deep within the heart of every believer. There's a battle, because sin, the, the remaining fleshly nature, it, it's, it's there still. Even if it, at times, seems dormant, it's there and we have a battle. And so Paul's trying to say, don't fall asleep in this battle. Wake up. There's a battle going on here. And in fact, Paul says, I, I've got this own battle. Let me explain to you what this battle looks like. Anybody here ever read The Fellowship of the Rings? There's three, three books by Tolkien. And one of those books, he was explaining, I can't remember if it's the second book or not, but he was explaining how they go into the mines of Moria. I think that's how you pronounce it. Any Tolkien fans? Is that correct? All right, mines of Moria. okay. He goes, they all go into this fellowship of the ring. They go into the mines of Moria, and they're deep there, and it seems really silent and quiet, but then all of a sudden, you hear this kind of this boom, this boom, boom, this pounding, and there goes my phone. You hear this pounding, this boom, and and Legolas warns them, he says, they're coming. They've awakened the evil that lied deep within, that lied dormant for many years. Evil lied dormant within the minds of Moria, buried deep, it lied dormant. And their very presence within these minds, it awakened the, sin, the, the evil, the sin that was there. I think that's what Tolkien was probably trying to do. He was just brilliant. He wasn't as direct about his analogies. And so they awakened this, and then later on, they find out that they've awakened a long, dormant beast called the Balrog. And this this massive beast. And Gandalf ends up fighting this beast. They all escape. And Gandalf fights in their place. And then it appears as if Gandalf lies dead. And it's kind of a cliffhanger until the next book. The law is good, but it highlights our battle with our badness. There's a raging battle even if you don't realize it exists, deep within. And God's law functions to reveal that battle. Why? Because we we need to know we have a battle with sin so that we fight sin so that we're conformed into the image of God. Look in verse 14, it says, For we know the law is spiritual. And, and by the way, I think only a, a believer can know that the law is spiritual, that it comes from the Spirit. We know the law is spiritual. He says, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The law is good because it reveals our desires of the flesh and that on our own we are sold under sin. You look in verse 15, he says, I don't understand my own actions. There's something going on. He says, Paul says, if, if you've experienced this, this is a battle, and this is a good battle. This is a battle that, that's within you. He says, I don't understand my own actions. I don't, I don't do what I want You know, I've been planning to go to bed early so I can get up and I can go to church and I can stay awake and I can worship God. But you know what, I I gave in again last night and I stayed up watching a binge of Netflix. I'm I'm using it as an illustration. Um, I was studying last night. But you've ever done that kind of thing? You're like, oh man, the very thing I wanted to do, I I just, I don't do. Instead, I, I did the very thing I hate. Or maybe, you know what, I was trying really hard. When my kids, they were sinning. I was convicted last time because I got angry with them. And so this time, I'm going to say, you know what, when they, get, when they sin, I'm just going to keep calm, practice some deep breathing, count to 10, and I'm not going to respond and get angry. And then, then your kid comes in, and maybe they're disrespectful this time. And so then you lay into them. And then afterwards, you realize, oh, crud, the very thing I didn't want to do is what I ended up doing. It's the very thing I hate. What's going on? There is a battle that goes on in the heart of every Christian with sin and the flesh that remains. So Jesus came to redeem us from the cursed law. He came to break the power of the law. But not all of the flesh has yet been removed. And and Paul says you need to know that there's a battle going on. Look in verse 16. He says, you know, here's what happens. He says, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. What's he saying? He said, well, when you yell at your kid after you didn't want to do that, afterwards you're like, oh, man, it really is good not to yell and to not be angry and to be peaceable. And so you're agreeing with the law that is good, with God's law, God's standard. It's a good standard. And by the way, I think only believers can agree that God's law is good. The problem is not with being at peace and not being angry. Instead, the problem is within me. The problem is not my children. The problem is me. The problem is I have a remaining desire within me that wants respect, that demands obedience, that wants ease. Maybe those are some of the things that go on your hearts, with some of the things that go on my heart if I get angry because I want respect, I want ease, I want things my way, I don't want to have to deal with this. I want people to give me the respect I deserve, I want people just to listen, I want to be in control, whatever that might be. What, what happened here is the command to be peaceable and to be loving is good, but it reveals the struggle that lies within with the desires. These Sin is almost like spoken of as a power in these verses and because it says, you know, coveting is not the sin, sin stirs up coveting. Sin is, is seen like these desires that lie dormant, these evil desires and the law that reveals those things. And so what's happening, Paul explains this battle. He's explaining, he says, Christian, if you're, if you're struggling, you're continuing to sin, and you even know that it's good not to sin, and you're trying not to, but you end up doing it anyway, what's going on within you? Look in verse 17, he says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He doesn't mean that Paul, he's not saying, I'm not really sinning here, there's someone else. He's not being schizophrenic. He's saying there is this sinful sin, this is not who I really am, who I desire to be, but there's this sinful desire that dwells within me that that stirs this up. If I'm observant and take some time to think about it, this pattern really helps me see and understand my own heart too. You know, why do you get angry? Why do you sin? Why do you struggle? It's it's because you have this remaining sin that dwells within you. It doesn't define you, that's not who you are as a Christian. But this, this remaining sin, wells dwells within you, that's where your struggle is. This old nature, these old desires and habits and patterns of thinking, these sinful desires that dwell within us, we have to understand, acknowledge, and, and battle against these desires. And so the law is good because it reveals the battle. Look in verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He goes and explain it. He's not saying that there's nothing good in me that, that I'm not, a, I, I've not, been made alive at all. He just says, no, in my flesh, on my own, there's nothing good in my flesh. And then he explains the desire that I think is only God given. He says, I have the desire to do what is right. I desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. On my own, in my flesh, I can't do the very good that I want to do. You ever feel that way? You're like, oh, I don't feel like I can do this. That's the experience of so many believers. I've, I've sat in so many different counseling sessions with people, and they're saying, I don't know why I keep doing these same things. And Paul says, because there's a battle going on. There's a, there's a battle with these desires that lie within. The old sin nature, the flesh, is still there. You're battling it on your own. You have no ability to carry it out. And then he explains that again in verses 19 and In 20, he kind of reiterates the same thing. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. As a believer, you don't want to do evil, but you still do evil. We want to do good. Ultimately, only believers can want to do what's good and right as far as God's concerned. People can claim to love God's commandments and externally you can try to obey the law but the only one who truly loves God can delight in the law and so later on Paul in verse 22 says I delight in the law of God in my inner being and look at verse 20 what's happening here he says now if I do what I do not want he goes on explains the same principle again he said, it's the, it's the flesh. In my flesh, I can't do any good. And then on verse 20, he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul here is explaining, and he's been using Romans to explain, God makes us righteous by faith. And yet, don't be, don't be confused. We still have a battle against sin. And the law reveals that battle. Sin doesn't spring from our redeemed new hearts it's it's not who we are at the core of the sinning but we do have remaining desires and habits and patterns that are resident within us that drive us to sin and so paul's saying the struggle is real and it's predictable and christians can have it and then verse 20 he says so i find it to be a law that when i wanted you right evil lies close at hand what's he doing he's he's warning us that, that sin deceives sin reveals now Sin is lying there. Sin is crouching at the door. Whenever we want to do what's right in God's eyes, be watchful because evil is lying close at hand. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 10 that says, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. What he's saying is, don't be clueless here. When you want to do right, be careful because evil is, is lying there close at hand ready to pounce. There's a battle. And he says in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He really delights in the law of God from his heart. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can understand that, right? You can say, I actually want to live a righteous, holy life. I want to live in accordance with God's standards from my very core of who I'm being. In my inner man, I want to live what's right. I want to do what's right. I want to obey God and... Then in verse 23, he's not naive, and we're not to be naive either, and he says in verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And that's kind of reiterating what he talked about earlier in Romans 6, is that if we submit to sin, it makes us captive again. We can submit again to sin and and be captives, even though you delight in God's law. There's a battle that's going on with every, every believer. This sinful desires, remaining desires of flesh, to seek to make us captives, again, to the ruling sinful desires within. But then he cries out, and I love really the third major thing that he's doing here. He's been building up to this point the whole time, even though it's extremely brief, He's been building up to this. This is how the law functions. The law shows us our need. The law reveals the battle. And the law should do something else. It should drive us to Jesus. It should drive us to Jesus. When we see our inability, when we see that we can't on our own fight sin, when we see that we have this remaining nature within us that we're battling against, what's our response? I think we're meant to cry out the same way Paul does. Paul does. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers that question. He says, only Jesus delivers us from our badness, even when the battle continues. Only Jesus delivers us from our badness, even when the battle continues. The law can't deliver. The law reveals. The law stirs up. The law is shows us that sin is always at hand the law reveals the battle but only Jesus delivers only Jesus delivers us from our badness even when the battle continues when you see that battle happening within you it's meant for you to cry out too it's meant for you to say how how wretched in myself I am how wretched is my flesh my nature my sin nature It's meant to cry out to God for deliverance. And the answer to that question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is not uncertain here. He is not questioning, really. We can't deliver ourselves from sin no matter how hard we try. It's what he's been saying all along. We can't set ourselves free. But as we look to God, we cry out for deliverance. Look in verse 25. He answers that question. And it's emphatic. That's why there's an exclamation mark in the ESV, at least. And I think most translations have that. It's emphatic answer to that question. Look in verse 25. This is the moment we should probably stop and just all stand and sing and rejoice and say, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have deliverance. That's who delivers us from the body of death. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have deliverance. That's where our hope lies, to rescue us from our wretchedness. Paul answered his own, his own question of who will deliver him from this body of death. And it's like he's exploding into praise. He's been, he's been working up to this place to show us our need for God, to show us the wrestle, the battle within. And by the way, these verses are so encouraging to me when I'm, when I'm wrestling. We say, you know what, the apostle Paul is describing something that can happen. Now, it shouldn't be the ongoing experience all the time, but those times come when you think, and hey, can I even really be a Christian because I, I feel like I'm still sinning, I can't do the things I want to do, and I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Maybe you're doubting your Christianity here because you're thinking I don't want to do what's wrong and I want to love God and I really do want to please God but I see that I can't do it on my own and I keep doing these same things time and time again. And so maybe that's got to the place where you say I don't know if I'm really a Christian or not. Say really well? Do you want to love God? Cry out to him? He's the one who delivers. And by the way this is actually a normative struggle. It's not an all the time struggle. Don't stay there but this is a normative struggle. He, he references the same thing in Galatians. Who will deliver us when we're battling sin? I think Paul's trying to get us to a place where we see not ourselves. In my flesh, I can't do it. I can't, I can't deliver myself from sin in my flesh. I can't stop sinning on my own. And that's what the law is meant to do. It's meant to function, to point us to the gospel to point us to see our need for Jesus, who came to deliver us, who came to fulfill the law perfectly so that we no longer have to, so that we're no longer under the obligation and the penalty of the law, so that there is no, we'll get this next week, uh, two weeks from now, there's no condemnation because Jesus has delivered us from the law. Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came to deliver us from the law. We can't deliver ourselves, but he can deliver us in our wretchedness. You know, sometimes as a Christian, you you struggle and think, I just can't stop sinning. And oftentimes, what the problem is is that we're trying in our own strength and our own ability. We're trusting in ourselves. We're doing this, looking down at our navels instead of looking up and say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one who delivers. He's my place of hope. He's the place I will trust. I will trust in him. Thanks be to God. And Paul says, you know, even after I've, trusted in Christ and said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord, there's still a battle that remains. In my mind, he says in verse 25, I, I myself, the very core of who I am, I myself, I serve the law of God with my mind, with an it'll be right, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's so even though Christ has delivered you, there's still a battle that remains. And you think, wow, how's that encouraging? Well, it's encouraging, I, I think it's in, in a few areas. One, it's, it's a warning to us. To if you don't think you have a problem with sin, be careful. It's lying close at hand. It's a warning that you, you might not have yet stirred up the Balrock, but there's a battle within. It's a, it's a warning that it, it, it's hopeless when you rely on yourself. But it's also an encouragement that we don't have to. It's encouragement that we can rely, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He delivers, no matter what. Now, he delivers in this life, and then ultimately, in the end, I think it's it's kind of speaking of two things, he delivers us in this life, but in the end, oh, there one day will be a wonderful, great day where we no longer will battle sin. But right now, we serve the law of God with our minds, even though with our flesh, we serve the law of sin. And then I think it's also a comfort for us, these verses. It's normal to battle sin. Even really strong Christians, even the Apostle Paul, battled and wrestled with sin. Or at least spoke about it in the present tense. Of The wrestling and wanting to do what's right, but not. You know, Paul was somewhat of an irascible character and he had a lot of zeal. I can imagine he probably struggled with being patient. I can imagine that when he had to correct Peter, he had a hard time not being angry at Peter, too. It doesn't say that, I don't know. But it does say there was a sharp disagreement between him and and Barnabas, a sharp falling out, so sharp that they never worked together again. He wrestled with sin. I'm sure he regretted that. I'm sure he wrestled with, like, why did I say those things to Barnabas? You know, maybe I was right, but I was dead wrong the way I said it. He wrestled, and that's a comfort that if you are wrestling with sin, that's meant to show you that you need a Savior, that you have a Savior. Stop putting your trust in yourself and put your trust in Christ. But it's also meant to say, this is normative and there's hope. Jesus delivers. That's our ultimate comfort. He delivers from this body of death. You know, later on in that book, Actually, it might have been the next book. Gandalf, actually, he emerges from the pit. He defeated the Balrog, and he, he returns to lead them out into their final deliverance. Jesus came, and he defeated our sin, and it might have appeared that he was conquered, but after three days, he rose victorious to bring us deliverance both now and in the future. He is our ultimate deliverer. He is our ultimate hope. He is the one who leads us. Let us look to him and not despair. Amen. Can the band come up, if you will, please.